When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From Pod World Headquarters, this is the Carolina Insider from Learfield IMG College. Back time for another edition of the Carolina Insider and Adam. So many things are coming together right now on this pod. Number one, Adam, it's pod number 300. Congratulations, Jones. You've done it. Adam, we did it. We took 300 steps together. (laughs) But when you do not see my footprints in the sand, (laughs) that is when I was carrying the pod. (laughs) And, and Adam, it's a pod after dark. So, Adam and I are actually recording after the BC game. It's been a long day. We've been in two different hills. We were we were in Chestnut Hill, and now we're in Chapel Hill. Wow. <laughs> Sit back and think about that. <laughs> Don't let your mind get blown. That explains why I was just sitting here thinking what the hill is going on. I'm glad we've made Pod 300 our best. (laughs) (laughs) All right, starting again. (laughs) So, we're going to talk about this BC game. We, uh, 
We've got a good interview. Former Tar Heel head coach, former Tar Heel defensive coordinator, and just an all-around swell guy, Carl Torbush, is going to join us and have a really fun time talking to Coach Torbush about him being on that staff when Mac Brown was building Carolina into a power in the 90s, then Coach Torbush's tenure, which was a rocky one with just a lot of different things that happened, a lot of injuries, a lot of issues. So we talk about that um, and just a lot of fun stories from Carolina football's history. So looking forward to that. I feel like it'd be fun to sit down and just talk ball with Carl Torbush. I'd like to watch a game with him. Get on the old grease board? Yeah. I think, but I think even maybe more than that, I'd like to watch a men's baseball game yeah. with Carl Torbush, but he wouldn't have time, and you'll find out why. Yeah. We, uh, since we are recording this earlier than normal, we will play some of Mac Brown's Monday press conference for you so that you can hear some of the comments of Coach Brown because normally for the Tuesday show we like to normally I will have talked to Coach Brown by then and he will have met with the media and so we'll have some ideas of kind of his thoughts on the game and can talk about those some but due to the schedule this week we don't have that opportunity so we're going to let you listen to some of what he says coming up in just a little bit we'll do that before the uh, before the interview with Coach Torbush and Adam we have a little something special for pod 300 whatever you're thinking it is i can pretty much guarantee you that's not right unless you're thinking it's awesome and you're right on right well yeah that was just kind of understood the podcast brought to you by ls tractor do you have any outside chores or projects i have a laundry list of them probably Blow-ups are up, by the way, so check that off the list. Fully They're inflated and yeah. on go. Watch out, it's spooky at our house. Let Ellis Tractor make short work of your outside chores. They'll come right over and put up your, <laughs> your blow-ups. <laughs> From normal yard maintenance to larger projects as well, Ellis Tractor has the machine for you. LSTractorUSA.com, see the difference. Ellis Tractor, what's it about for you? Do you have any new ones this year? I don't think so. I don't think so. We're going with the old standbys. We've got some witches, some ghosts, some pumpkins, some jack-o'-lanterns. I saw one the other day that was a big black and red dragon. And for some reason, he had his foot on what I – it looked like a soccer ball, but I think maybe it was like a globe and he could see the future or something. But – the first Adam, was this on your little cat nap you took <laughs> on the way between the hills today? But the, the first thing my wife said was, you should send a picture of that to Jones and Elizabeth. I bet they would like that. But I didn't, and now we're left to wonder what he had his foot on. Was it a soccer ball? Or was it a globe? <laughs> or was it our dreams? Okay, so before we get to any of that other stuff, let's talk about this BC game. A weird, weird game. Long game. Strong game. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. So, so, I think, Adam, it's odd in that I leave this game being 
happy the Tar Heels won and thinking they did some good things. But if you said, Jones, what do you think the Tar Heels really did to win this game? I'm not really sure. They scored more points than Boston College, which is the goal. They had some moments where they looked really good. The offense in the in the first half in particular, outside of that, that one interception when Howe got blindsided, I thought was pretty good. The defense was pretty good in the second half. They allowed the long drive late. But they were that was the only time BC scored in the second half. So there were definitely some good pieces to Carolina's victory. But I don't know if I can say that I other than they stopped BC from running the ball, BC though didn't really seem to have any interest in throwing the ball. They threw it or running the ball. They threw it nearly sixty times. So it was just an it was just an odd, odd game. I think Carolina made just enough plays to win and made just few enough losing plays to win, if that makes sense. Because I think on the on the Boston College pod right now, yeah. they're probably saying the Eagles had that one but just made too many silly plays. Yeah, I mean, it was an oddly emotional game, I thought. For a game that didn't feel like it had a ton of emotion going into it, and by that I mean animosity or negativity, but it got to be a pretty chippy game. And you and I were talking about this afterwards. I I do think not having the crowd there amps up the emotions of the players towards each other more. Like I think there's you, so you don't have that roar of the tens of thousands of people behind you or the satisfaction of quiet in the home crowd. But you do have a much more easily accessible dialogue between the teams. And you saw that, I thought, come out a couple of times in Carolina and BC. And the emotions, I think, bubbled over a couple of times. And it really hurt Boston College on that drive when Carolina kicked a field goal in the second half to go up eight. They gave Carolina 45 yards on three consecutive plays with illegal hits or, with, I mean, with personal fouls. On three straight plays, there was a pass interference that was a grab on a pass and then back-to-back late hits after that. They gave Carolina half the field on penalties and the Tar Heels ended up kicking what was a very important field goal because of it. I definitely think with no fans, it feels like it becomes more mano y mano. Yeah, because you you can't you can't put your finger up to your lips and shh the crowd to, and get some satisfaction out of that. So where are you going to get it by showing those guys? Yeah. And remember when baseball started back, and there was all the talk about how people felt like there was a little more chippiness because you could hear the other dugout much more clearly and hear every single word they say. But And I think that's kind of what happened in Chestnut Hill. But I also think Jeff Halfley lit the match. Yeah, absolutely. That became the inferno that was his team's emotions on in the very first quarter when he didn't like the fact that Trey Morrison tried to tackle someone. So it was a play early in the game. I think it was BC's second possession, I think. And the Eagles 
not surprisingly, tried to throw it to the tight end, Hunter Long. And a bit of a foreshadow for what was to yeah. come over the next four hours. And let's just say that dude's legit. I mean, he's really, really good. He's tall and big and can run fast for his size, and he's just hard to cover. It's it's hard to have a player on your team who matches up right with him. But so on this particular play, it's when Trey Morrison dislodged a pass where Long had the ball in his hands for a moment around the 10, I think, 5 or 10, and Morrison hit him very very hard but very legally with a shoulder to the midsection, to the kind of not necessarily the gut, not the chest, kind of in between. And it shook up Long. And again, totally legal hit. It was a shoulder to the midsection, not lowering the head. The hit wasn't up in the neck uh, head area. And so Long stayed down. Morrison went over with his teammates, and he did one of those things where they jump up and, like, bump each other on the side or something. So that, that's probably how the kids explain it. <laughs> Trey said, hello, excuse me, please, Storm Duck. I'd like to jump up and celebrate by bumping sides with you, sir. <laughs> So, they they did the jump bump bump up. That's what I'm going to call it. Yeah. The jump up bump up, Adam. So, they did the jump up bump up, and Jeff Halfley did not like this. And so, and we could hear it in our booth. He turned to his sideline and said, our players hurt, and they're celebrating. And then something like, think about that, or what are you going to do about it, or something like that to his team. And then, as he got up and came back to the side and talked about Jeff Halfley, he then gathered his whole team around him because there eventually was a full timeout because it was taking them a while to check on Long. And fortunately, Long was fine. He went on to have a great game. Likely just got the wind knocked out of him because of the type of hit that it was. But so then, Halfley brings his whole team around him, and we couldn't hear him at this point, but it was pretty clear that he was reinforcing the message. And, yeah, I think that set the tone for his team playing on the edge. The Tar Heels started getting on the edge, particularly the offensive line, I thought, and Trey Morrison. Trey Morrison was very chatty, and he had a great game, including the biggest play of the game for the Tar Heels. And so it just, that moment seemed to put the game on edge the rest of the way. I think when Jeff Halfley looks back at that, in a year or 10 years, he's going to say he probably feels like he handled that moment a little too much like a defensive coordinator and not quite enough like a head coach. I think especially the the yelling from the field. Like right. if he wants to go over there. Right. And even, and, and even if he does one of those where he's walking up and down the sideline and he's talking to the guys behind him, but you can't really tell that he's talking to the – you can tell he's talking to somebody – but to make such a show of it, I thought was was what sparked it so much. You can get that point across to try to give your team some motivation without making such a deal about it. And it's his third game as a head coach. Right. And I, I, I think that's part of what happens with a young head coach. You get the fieriness and you get the, I'm still learning some of the subtle nuances that maybe I'll know 10 years from now. Because it seems like he's a good coach. Well. BC has got some pieces. They apparently either can't run the ball or don't want to run the ball. But Jerkovic is a good player. 
the quarterback, and the tight end is good, long. And those two linebackers are good, McDuffie and 14, whose name I can't remember. Richardson? Yes, Richardson. They've got some some pieces. I, I mean, I think they're going to win some games in the conference. I mean, because they've got a quarterback that can play in this league at a high level, I think. I mean, Carolina threw everything they had at Jerkovic, and they got to him some, and they forced some crazy plays, and some of his crazy plays just turned out to be crazy but not harmful, where he just, I mean, there were a couple times where he just slung it underhanded up in the air, and somehow they went out of bounds or someone caught it. Um, and finally it hurt him at the end with the pick, which wasn't his craziest throw of the day, but it was another one of these on the move across his body, which he had completed some big passes that way, and finally it caught up with him. Um, but I think they've got some – they will win some games this year. I think they're pretty good. And I think Syracuse is not good, but they're better than everybody was acting like they were particularly on defense. And so I don't know what the reaction to this game is going to be. I'm sure it's going to be, oh, the uh, Tar Heels aren't beating teams by enough. But I think the two teams they've played have been not excellent, but solid teams. I think BC is better than Syracuse, but I think they're both okay with BC maybe being even a little better more than okay. And I think the evaluation of Carolina – is a little off because people aren't taking into account what Mac Brown talked with you about right after the game, which was that this we're not conditioned to think of a game played in October as an opener, but it basically was. And I thought Mac Brown made the good point that last week Boston College didn't play very well against a team they should have beaten, still beat them, but then the Boston College coaches were able to coach them hard this yeah. week, as Mac Brown said. Carolina hasn't had that luxury because you can't coach a team hard after they have an open weekend and have a couple practices. They will get to do that this coming week. And I think if you see some of the same problems you saw Saturday next week against a better Virginia Tech team, then you can be concerned. But this was basically an opener. I'm really, I really think that Virginia Tech game is going to be a fascinating game. Virginia Tech has run for more than 300 yards in each of its first two games. Carolina has shut down the running attack of both Syracuse and Boston College to the point where it, BC didn't even want to run. They they didn't even they weren't even acting like they were going to run. And so I, I'm sure some of that is the opponents and their that not being their strength. And some of that is Carolina. I think has been pretty good against the run so far in the opportunities that the other team has presented them with. Um, so that's for later in the week. Some other stuff about this game. Adam, I think the secondary is starting to get thin all of a sudden in a position where you thought, well, there is, they have so many good guys. This is going to be one of their strengths easily. Well, of course you have the three players opt out. Then you have, the odd academic ineligibility for Miles Wolfuck, and I say odd because he's already graduated from Carolina and somehow fell behind in graduate school, which is something I've never heard of before. So you lose Wolfuck, who we've had on the pod, is a great guy and a good player, a leader on the field. So the Tar Heels felt like they were able to absorb that. They moved Morris into safety. Jaquarius Conley, the true freshman to nickel. Then Conley 
suffers a lower body injury in the game. So Welton Spotsville is now your nickel, a guy who was a wide receiver last year and just now moved over to defense. Then during the game, Storm Duck gets hurt late, and Duck has been to the point where teams don't even want to throw to him because he's so good defensively. I think the man he was guarding caught one pass, and it was on third down, and it was he didn't get the first down. Um, so all of a sudden, you're starting to get a little thin there. And as of as we are talking, don't know the severity of Storm Duck's injury, but certainly hope it isn't a bad one because Tariels need him on the field. And Conley. And Conley, yes. I think you you need them both for depth purposes. Duck's the more immediate problem, I guess, because everyone's seen how good he's been in the first couple games. But I think Conley, if Conley's hurt, you lose some of your flexibility. And all of a sudden you've got some guys in some spots where they're not quite as sure what they're doing. I think you saw Wilton Spotsville maybe maybe just a quarter step hesitant on a couple things, which he should be right? because it's not instinctive yet. He, he has no instincts there. He's never been on the field doing it before. So I think that's definitely an area to watch. My, the Miles Wolfuck thing, because of when it happened, and there was so much else going on with the Charlotte game, no one really paid attention to. But I, I wonder if when we're sitting here in late November, we don't look back at that and go, that really was impactful. And then, Adam, on the other side, a couple things. Carolina's offensive line is still a work in progress. And it's not, it's not bad. That's not what I'm saying. But it's not as consistent, I think, as the Tar Heels want it to be right now. And there's some moments where it looks pretty good, and there's some moments where it struggles. Hal took another blindside hit, um, which he was able to hold on to the football against Syracuse. This time he was in the motion, the throwing motion, when he took the hit, and it ended up being a big interception. And we'll talk about that confusing ruling that pinned Carolina back on that play in a little bit. Um. So, more consistency from the offensive line. Sam Howell still, to me, doesn't look quite, I don't know if comfortable is the right word. I thought Brian Simmons and, of course, we're missing, not, not that Lee Pace isn't doing a great job, because he is, but we, we just miss Brian's insight in the booth right now because we just didn't feel, we talked about this, didn't feel like it was smart to have Brian come on, get on a commercial flight, you know, 22 times to get here and back for all these games this year. So he's joining us in pregame and in postgame on the phone. And I thought he had a great point on the phone after the game when he was talking about how of the expectations are so high. And the standard is what he did last year, which is an incredibly high standard to try and reach. And teams know what Carolina wants to do and can do better this year than they did last year. They've had a whole offseason to look at it and to look at how and what he likes to do. And so now it's incumbent on the Tar Heels to adjust to that adjustment. And it's a great point. And of course they will. I mean, that's part of the whole deal of football. But they have to now understand what teams are doing to take away some of the things that maybe Carolina could do frequently last year that now they're going to have to pick their spots and make sure they hit those spots when they're available this year. 
and then figure out some other ways to be successful, which I think you're seeing some of it. Howell is running more. He had some big scrambles for first downs in this game. Javante Williams and Michael Carter have always been heavily involved, but I think they're even more involved, and they should be. They're, they're really producing at a high level. Um, but to me, that consistency up front, how getting a little more relaxed or comfortable, and then finally, they got to figure out a way to get Daz Newsome the ball. You know, Daz Newsome had an all-ACC caliber year last year, more than 1,000 yards receiving. He was so good all season, but really at the end of the year in particular. Um, and he has three catches in, in two games. And so they, they need to find a way to get him the ball a little bit more, I would think. And it's not that he's not catching it or, or dropping passes. It's that the Tar Heels aren't really able to find him and target him with the ball much at all which would I kind of suggest to you that if he's being taken away in the middle, then maybe there's some openings down the field outside. And Carolina tried that a couple times against Boston College, but I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see that a little more. I think as far as the offensive line goes, as you said, it's not that they've been bad, but I don't think you could fairly say they've been good either. I think they've been about average at best. And one thing Mac Brown said to you after the game was the penalties. Yeah. On the offensive line. Yeah, that, there were some big penalties on Carolina, and a lot of them were on the offensive line. You had a chop block. You had a couple illegal man downfields. Holds. A couple holds. Um, so that stuff's got to get cleaned up because I think, I think Carolina made enough mistakes offensively against Boston College to have lost to a better team. And there are some of those coming up soon, including next week. Adam, now let's talk about a couple good things. Um, Trey Morrison had a really good game, mentioned the big hit he had, and of course that that final play was a big one when BC was going for two to try to tie it, and he gets the interception, even though it doesn't technically go down as an interception because it was on a two-point conversion. And the heads up by Trey to run it back. I think maybe sometimes when it's the two-point play, you don't do that because you think the play's over, but... There was no doubt. He was heading down the sideline as soon as he picked it, and it, it was a no-doubter that he was going to take it back for the two points. Um, so big play there from him. He was really active in this game. I thought Surratt was really active and good. He probably – I mean, there, there were so many times that he and Gimmel had their hands on the BCQB and couldn't get him down, and I think they won't be alone in that category this year. So I'm guessing they're probably a little frustrated, but I thought they were good. And then, and this is something small, Adam, but you saw just a little window of some of the true freshmen who were on that defense, Miles Murphy and Dez Evans in particular. And this is the first game Evans had played. He had an upper body, uh, body injury in the first game. And while neither of them made huge plays, Evans had some good pressures on the QB, Murphy had a stop in there. I mean, you can just see what Carolina has kind of raw talent-wise in those two guys and some others, but those are just two I was picking out. Yeah, they were impressive. I think Morrison was very good, but it's always concerning when you come away from the game defensively feeling like, oh, our, your DB was your very best defensive player because that means there was a lot happening around him, which you don't always – kind of the Dexter Reed syndrome. Right. You mentioned Surratt. There was a play in the third quarter that you called out on the radio where he just ran down Flowers, a Boston College receiver, from 
a significant distance away and caught him from behind. He also had a really big hit in that same quarter. He he was impactful in the game, as he always is, and he started kind of slow. I think he only had one tackle in the first half. So uh, played a really good second half. I think Jay Bateman will – he'll go back to the grease board this week on a, on a couple things because it seemed like he tried sending pressure from pretty much everywhere, and – the results say they didn't always get there. As you mentioned, some of those times the Tar Heels were there and just couldn't bring Jurgovic down because he's the best quarterback in college football, evidently. <laughs> um, but gonna gonna have to get a little more creative well, with that. His ability to scramble, talk about Jurgovic, and BC's relentless screen game, I, I think tried to take advantage of Carolina's defense. And the Tar Heels took away some of those shorter passes and screen games and let them catch them in front of them and made tackles more in the second half. And I think that's a big reason why BC didn't score as much in the second half um, or have as many quality drives as they did in the first. So I, it was just a good, close football game, good plays on both sides, mistakes on both sides. And still, it and you said this, even though it's October, still what feels like very early in the season, really for both these teams, just a good good game that you're going to feel better if you're the Tar Heels because they won. And one more thing, Javante Williams and Michael Carter are really good, and Carolina needs to keep getting them the ball. And I think the way Carolina's using them is smart. Uh, Carter's your outside guy. Javante Williams is your inside guy. I feel like Carter's gotten faster. He looked good. There were a couple times where he got the corner turned, and there was one. I can't. Heels were going left to right, and he went around that far corner and was going down the sideline, and it felt like he covered 15 yards in a snap. Really like Javante Williams on the goal line. You're probably not going to tackle him on first and goal from the one. Two other defensive players who we didn't mention who I thought either made big plays or were impressive – Tyrone Hopper, yeah, he there, had, there at the end in the fourth quarter, had a couple of big plays. He had a sack and pressured uh, uh, pressured BC on the final play uh, that ended up being the interception on the two point play. And I thought our good friend Ray Vahasik, yeah, was impactful in the trenches on several different occasions. He he's one of those guys that can be impactful by both making plays and then just by the amount of people that he occupies to have to slow him down. And so sometimes you may go two quarters without calling his name, but my guess is the coaches are going to like what he did because he was facing, he was eating up two offensive linemen the whole time and allowing some other guys to get free. Maybe he frees up a lane for Chas Surratt to come right. through and get to the quarterback. Right. So all in all, Carolina won a game with weird circumstances with the travel and the long layoff and a solid team, and they won. And so now hopefully they can – get into this season a little bit and see if they can find a rhythm and, and start feeling like a normal year, as normal as it can be. When you start thinking about how you're not real pleased with these first two wins, keep in mind Carolina's on its first three-game ACC winning streak since 2016. Yeah, they've won five straight games going back to, to last year. So remember, there were a couple – 2017 and 18 weren't much fun. And so – Tariels are making it fun again and growing and playing better. And are they perfect? Absolutely not. But fun to watch right now. Okay. Before we get to the 
Mac Brown press conference. Let me remind you that we have the champions of the gridiron where we highlight MVPs from the previous game brought to you by UNC Healthcare, dedicated to caring for champions of all kinds, keep you in the game and at your very best. See their lineup, unchealthcare.org slash sports. We kind of just did that, went through a bunch of the standouts for the Tar Heels. So that is our UNC Healthcare champions of the gridiron. All right, so we're going to go first to some press conference comments from Mac Brown from Monday. Since Adam and I are recording this a little bit earlier than we normally do, we want to make sure that you hear Coach Brown's reactions to uh, the win over BC. And we'll do that, come back, and then get you teed up for the uh, interview with Carl Torbush. But first, Coach Brown and his press conference from Monday. Really proud of the guys, excited about the win. Hard fought win on the road. Um, first time we've uh, won two in a row to start the season since 08 and 09. Uh, uh, Jeremy told me this morning it's the first time we've ever beaten two ACC opponents in the first two games. Uh, so that's uh, something that these kids have accomplished. And both these games were really like openers. They were teams that we hadn't played before um, since, since we've been here, didn't play them last year. Uh, there were teams that uh, had changed coordinators, had changed head coaches. Um, we had a little bit more on Boston College than we did Syracuse, but because they, they had a couple of games, but they changed a lot of things coming into our ball game. Uh, so it, uh, it, the, these young people on our team and our staff's been incredible to, to fight COVID and all the different changes that have occurred going on the road for the first time is different, and I'm uh, really, really proud of them. So... Um, really excited about the win. Happy that we're in the top ten, understanding that uh, um, early rankings don't make any difference. And I told them that. I said, the, the good thing for you is that people have given you the respect that they feel like you should be there. Uh, the, the tough thing is you've got to earn it to stay. And that's very, very important going forward. Um, and usually we improve the most from one week to the, the first week to the second week. This should be like our second week. And we're playing a team that we played last year that there's still a lot of unknowns for us, but uh, at least it's a, an opportunity for us to, to get better. Players of the game for, for Boston College, um, for, for us against Boston College, Michael Carter was the offensive player of the week. Uh, he just had an amazing day. He's got such great vision. He took care of the ball. Uh, so he's the offensive player. A defensive player, there's so many great plays on defense, but Trey Morrison made the play to win the game. Uh, so that, uh, without question, at the end. And special teams player of the week is Jonathan Kim because he's 11 for 11 kicking it out of the end zone. So he's taken away the, the threat of a kickoff return right now, and he's a, he's a real weapon for us. Defensively, a lot of the guys played well. Chas Surratt played well. Tyrone Hopper played well. Taman Fox, Tamari Fox, Jer Jeremiah Gimmel. Uh, so many guys up front were, were physical, uh, but they threw us a curveball. We thought they'd line up and be physical and run Bailey, uh, the big running back, a lot during the ball game. And we had a um, we worked on five defensive linemen all week and four defensive backs, and then they come out and throw the ball 56 times. So it caught us completely off guard. It's not at all what we thought. Uh, Jerkovic's an outstanding quarterback, and he's much better in our game than he was in the opening game with Duke or his second game with uh, Texas State, even though he had a tremendous drive at the end of the game uh, to, to win. But uh, 
we hit him and we tried to tackle him and they say he's 225. I think he's more like 245. We could not tackle a guy and he, he had the great presence of throwing the ball downfield while we were hanging all over him. And uh, uh, I can't imagine a, a better tight end in the country than Hunter Long. That guy got hit, he, he blocked, he covered punts. He's, uh, he was targeted about 20 something times and, and, and catches the ball a lot. So, uh, but we, we need to tackle the quarterback when we get him uh, in our grasp and we need to force more turnovers on defense. Uh, I do think we, would, we, we did lose this game both times last year that we had it at Pittsburgh when we had to make a play at the end of the game and couldn't make it at Virginia Tech. There's six overtimes. We had opportunities to win, and we didn't make the play. So uh, that, that's huge progress for us, uh, that we could win a tough game on the road where a lot of things didn't go our way. Um, and, and again, uh, Tyrone Hopper's the one that forced the quarterback out of the pocket for the two-point play. He had to throw back across his body and, and made it an easier interception for Trey. So uh, good for Tyrone Hopper. Offensively, the running backs did a super job. Javante Williams had a, a couple of great blocks in protection. Uh, maybe his, his biggest play of the game is uh, when there's a, a sack fumble and, and the ball's going back to about the 40-yard line. There's three or four Boston College guys going ready to either scoop it and score or lay on it, and he goes between them and fights them off and, and gets the ball and enables us to have a chance to punt. So a lot of those plays, are uh, they go unnoticed, but they're huge plays during the ball game. Uh, we felt like we've got to be more patient in our passing game for two weeks in a row. Last year we had so many deep balls and we, we just could score so quickly and right now people are backing off and they're making us hold the ball longer and we've got to get the ball out of our hands uh, and we've got to get the ball into to people's hands more quickly and, and uh, not have as many sacks. Um, for instance, there's 746 left to go in the ball game. Someone was questioning play selection at, at times when we got in the uh, down near the goal line. There's 746. We're on the plus 29 going in. We're first and 10. We're ahead 24 to 16. We've just got to score. We got a, a field goal, puts them in trouble, a, a touchdown may end the ball game and kill some clock while we're doing it. We throw them first down and everybody's griping, why did he throw the ball there? Because we're running the ball well. And what you look at, there was a, a jump call where you try to get them to get offsides. And then your center snaps the ball if they are. Well, they didn't get offsides. We snapped the ball and we threw a fade, which would have been a run in that situation. So we've just got to be smarter as a group. And, and that was uh, an error that was made that looks like <clears throat> it goes back to play selection. It really wasn't. It's something that's built into our plan that we didn't execute well. And then we go down and, and miss the field goal. It was a great kick, just a little bit uh, to the left. It had the, the soccer curve on it. So, um, but we got to be more patient. We, we took care of the ball pretty well. Um, we just had the one turnover where we got hit in the back because of a poor protection by a back, and that led to a, a turnover that led to points. Special teams, we said Jonathan Kim doing everything perfect uh, on kickoffs. Uh, ben Kiernan's doing the same. He, uh, he, he punted the ball directional punts and kept it out of their hands and they had done a good job with their, their punt returns. We didn't have much chance to have punt returns. I think we had two. Uh, one of them was away um, from Daz, and, and we always want to catch it in the air, but that one, they directional punted across the field, and we couldn't get to it. And the other one, we didn't do a good job of holding up 
their gunners. Uh, their gunners played better than our holdup guys, so we've still got to improve in that area. And then there were a couple that we went safe punt because we thought they might fake the punt. Um, the fair catch rule on the kickoff uh, to me is a, a poor rule that, that should be changed. It was put in for the right reason. Um, the uh, rules committee was worried about concussions on kickoff coverage and kickoff return because you're running 30, 40 yards and running into each other. So they wanted to have fewer kickoff returns. So they said fair catch the ball, move it to the 25, which is a good rule. It's fair and a lot of people are using it. Uh, where you get a punt and you use a fair catch, if the punt hits the ground and rolls, that you, you get the ball where it ends up. On kickoff, it's a little bit different. If the ball, you call a fair catch and the ball hits the ground wherever you touch it, if it doesn't go in the end zone, end zone is where you get it. If you let the ball go in the end zone, it's a touchback. Well, it's a live ball. So what happened with Michael, their, their kicker held the ball up four seconds a lot. They had a really good coverage team. So we decided on the, the deep kicks, we were going to fair catch the ball. Michael's one of our smartest players. He sees the kick. It's coming at him. It's high. He's got the fair catch signal up, and all of a sudden it fishtails and dies. And he can't get to it. And then it rolls back, and he touches the ball, and that's where they get the ball which I thought changed the whole momentum of the ball game. Uh, it gave them some hope. Uh, and it gave them some excitement. They had had trouble scoring, and it gave them a short field. So, um, but that, that's a rule to me that should be changed. If you're trying to discourage kickoff returns by fair catches, then treat it like a punt. If you call a fair catch and the ball's in the air, um, take it to the 25 if they want a fair catch it, and, and we'll have fewer returns. But that's... Uh, that's something I will propose to the, uh, to the rules committee. Just doesn't come up very often because squibs are squibs and sky kicks are sky kicks. And this one was halfway in between and got us caught off guard. As a team, we had entirely too many penalties. Uh, they're a well-coached discipline team. They had 12. We had 10. Some officials call more penalties than others in a game. This was one where a lot were called. And the procedure, so you will know, is every Sunday we look at all the penalties and we decide what we think is a, a fair call and we try to teach the players not to do it anymore based on that call. And then the second part of that is if we see one that we feel like should not have been called, we send that to the conference office because we want to know if they feel like it was a penalty, then we've got to start coaching things differently and they will get back to us uh, Tuesday or Wednesday on whether they think that the, the calls were, were fair or not. Uh, and the second thing I, I thought we've really have got to do a better job of, that's a continuation of last year, is we've got to do a better job of forcing turnovers on defense. We're protecting the ball pretty well on offense, but we're not forcing turnovers. We just had the one interception on the two-point play again, and, and uh, there was a ball on the ground once we stripped from the quarterback and didn't get on it. So that's an area we can improve. Uh, Virginia Tech game, I'm uh, number one, excited that we can have the families of our players there. We can have 3,500 fans that our administration's decided how to divide up between students and season ticket holders and fans, but uh, so good, uh, and, and to me, for mental health and, and, and just for parents to be able to see their, their sons play and for family members to be able to see their sons play. And, and uh, they, they didn't get to it at Syracuse, and they didn't get to it again at Boston College. And most of the parents came to the game against Syracuse and stood outside and waited or they had to go find a place to watch the game. And that's just, I hate that for them. It's just, it's uh, awful. But uh, they will get to come this weekend, and the players will get the normal amount of tickets that they would have gotten 
uh, before COVID for their families. So that's, uh, that's really, really positive. Uh, Justin Fuente is a friend of mine. He's, he's done a tremendous job at, at Memphis where I was calling his games when I was at uh, ESPN because they had a lot of Friday night games. And then I um, actually had one of his games where uh, uh, I did his pregame halftime uh, when they, they played up in D.C. against West Virginia. So I've known Justin a long time. I knew him as the offensive coordinator at TCU, in fact, when we, we worked against Gary Patterson uh, a long time ago. Um, he, he's done an outstanding job. They should be a top ten team. They're really good. They're 2-0. and and they've had a lot of people out. So um, they are really underrated, and that shows you the fallacy of, of early, early season um, ratings, in, in my estimation. Uh, last year's game, six overtimes, um, the, the difference was they were much more physical than we were. We had 143 yards rushing, and um, we only were 9 of 21 on third downs, and, and we gave up five sacks. They rushed the ball last year against us for 254 yards. And now in the first two games this year, they've rushed for over 300 yards in both games. So this is good. We thought Boston College was going to be a physical game. Our players won't have to worry about a change in, uh, in game plan from Virginia Tech. They're really good. And they'll line up and they'll run the ball. They're, they're physical on offense. They've got three good quarterbacks that can run it and throw it. And uh, Khalil Herbert, their, their transfer from Kansas, uh, is uh, he's gotten 316 yards in two games. He's averaging 12 yards per carry. I've never seen anything like that. It's unbelievable. And this guy's a, he is a, a great player. He's a lot of fun to watch. And then they've got the big, tall, fast, wide receivers. And their defense is very similar to what it was. They're going to be very aggressive. They're going to disguise a lot. They're going to come after you. And just three players that, that I just remember standing out from last year is uh, Richard Ashby, number 23. He's huge. Uh, he, he's an um, outstanding player, he's middle linebacker, number five, uh, Gerard uh, Hewitt, a big defensive lineman that, that knocked us around last year, and number eight, Emmanuel Belmar, defensive end, all three of those guys uh, are, are NFL superstars in the future. And they've got a lot of other guys on defense that'll be stars, but uh, those are three guys that just, uh, I remember standing on the sideline watching them early in the game last year and being so impressed with their physical presence, much less the way they played with, uh, with their aggressiveness. <laughs> football coaches modern day need to be psych psychiatrists and psychologists more than football coaches. You're, you think about all we're dealing with in our world. And these guys are between 18 and 22 years old. And they hear from a seven-win bowl game how great they are, but they don't get to practice. They don't get to get any better. And then they get in a, a game against Syracuse, and people hated the first half and loved the second half. And then they don't get to play against Charlotte, so they got 21 days off. And, and people are talking about how good they are again. Then you're supposed to blow this Boston College team out based on a game with Texas State that they didn't play very well. And what, what I tried to talk to the team and staff about yesterday is let's worry about us. T take all distractions out. Don't read. Don't listen. Don't, for, for somebody to, to tell you that this team is bad and you're good, uh, it's not the best team that wins on Saturday. It's the team that's the best that day. Let's go back to the, the lessons we talked about last night. Louisiana Lafayette beats an Iowa State team in Ames 31-14. to that Iowa State team goes to Fort Worth and beats TCU the second week. That Iowa State team beats Oklahoma the third week. The same one that got beat 31 to 14. 
Then TCU goes and beats Texas. I, I, I mean, it's crazy. Mississippi State kills LSU. We all say Heisman Trophy quarterback. Uh, Leach is going to win the SEC. It's, they're, they're, what a great team, man. This is unbelievable. They get beat by Arkansas, who's lost 20 straight SEC games the next week. You, Central Florida, young quarterback comes out and says that we're, we're the best team in Florida. Loses to Tulsa. Uh, gives up a 22-3 margin in the second half. So you, you, this has gotten down to the, the craziness of college football anyway, the craziness of these young people, but even more covid I mean, this is, this is a weird world out there right now. So what our guys have to do is prepare every week to play the best team that they, they can possibly play and play our best and not worry about Virginia Tech, not worry about Boston College, not worry about Syracuse because they're going to play better against us right now because we've gone from a team that won two games two years ago to a team right now that's in the top ten. We haven't done this before. We're learning how to win. We're learning how to handle all this stuff. And it's, uh, it, it's a good thing, but there are issues that have to be dealt with. And, and that's what we're doing. We're talking to our guys about just play and just play your best. From there, let's go to our interview with Carl Torbush, and it is brought to you by the Independent Insurance Agents of North Carolina. Texting while driving takes your eyes off the road for just around five seconds, and at highway speeds, that's like driving the length of a football field with your eyes closed. Trusted Choice Independent Insurance Agents of North Carolina want you to stay safe behind the wheel. So put down that phone while you're driving. Let's have a hands-free in See. To learn more, visit trustedchoice.com and find an agent near you. Really did have a good time talking to Carl Torbush. We'll do that. Come back. Uh, more to do here on the Carolina Insider. Our guest today not only could coach you up on the football field, but if I remember correctly, he could also coach you up on the baseball field and probably hit the ball over the fence at the same time. Carl Torbush, former head coach at the University of North Carolina, and also a coach, pretty good baseball player, right? Well, I'd like to think that back in the day, but uh, that was back in the day. Of course, I, I'll brag a little bit. I, I'm still playing uh, men's baseball, so uh, that's not too bad at 68 years old. <laughs> you're, you're playing baseball and not softball? Uh, baseball, you know, that little, bit, that little bitty ball that uh, Absolutely. they throw at you. So, you know, those 22-year-olds, if I get a hit off them and make them cry, I feel like I've been a success. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coach, other than making 22-year-olds cry on the diamond, uh, what what else is going on in your life right now? Well, you know, right now just uh, with this pandemic and uh, everything else going on in the world, we're just kind of sitting still. I, I do miss the opportunity to go watch uh, – Baseball games, number one, because I'm in a good location to see both college and, and pro pro ball, but uh, they obviously don't have me right now. And uh, football is uh, a scary situation because I'm not sure, you know, how close you want to sit to somebody in those stands if, if you're not sure who you're sitting with. Coach, take us back to maybe late 1987, early 1988. You're, you're in the coaching business, and you get a phone call from this young whippersnapper named Mac Brown, <laughs> and, and what does he say to you? Well, you know, Mac and I knew each other uh, before.
before that, we played baseball against each other in the summer. He played for Cook, Cook when I, of course, I played for a Knoxville team. And uh, then, you know, we, we maintained contact. And, of course, he was the head coach at Tulane when I was uh, at Ole Miss. And, uh, you know, I went to Louisiana Tech as the head coach. And, uh, obviously, I was born and raised in North Carolina. So when he gave me the call, uh offered me the job at North Carolina. I, I jumped as quick as I could because not only was I intrigued with the uh, University of North Carolina, I also loved those Carolina blue colors. Coach, what were those first few years like with Coach Brown? And, and just as you guys tried to build the program, even though I know you weren't having the success that you wanted on the field? Well, it, obviously, in today's world, you, you probably would have been fired because uh, – the first two years were absolutely awful. We just—I don't mean it, we just didn't. You know, it's hard to play with four eight cornerbacks, and that's what <laughs> we were basically trying to play with at that time. But uh, you know, uh, the one thing about Mac is he was a great, great recruiter. He maintained a positive attitude. He kept the alumni uh, very excited about the program, and that was the great thing about it—to see the program go from where we started at the first couple of years to see it uh, move to basically to six and five and then seven and four. And then after that, it, it truly took off. And uh, there, there's no question, in my opinion, you can you can credit all that to Mac Brown and, and what he did with the football program there at Carolina. He built the facilities. Uh, you guys aren't old enough to realize now, when we first got there, the, the facilities weren't very good. And now they obviously have got as good a facility as you're going, as you're going to find in the country. So uh, just uh, to see the, the – footprint the handprint that mac brown has put on that uh, university of north carolina program is uh it you know you could write a book about it and uh, obviously you could definitely write a book about the time that he was there the first time and, and since he's been back but uh mac was a great uh great head coach he was a great guy to work for but uh he, he met the public extremely well and because of him it, it gave us a chance to stay with it and continue to recruit and like i say a about three years after we got there, we turned that thing, and you could see it getting better and better and better, and pretty soon we had a program that, in my opinion, was nationally known. Was there ever a time in those first two or three years where you went home and shut the door and pulled down the window shades and thought, I just really don't know if this is going to work? Well, it, it, it you know, you look at it, we were, and, you know, I wish I could say we were pretty good on defense at that time, but we weren't. We were pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason if you look at the stat sheets, you can see how much improvement we made over the first seven or eight years. We got better, I think, every year we were there, those first seven or eight years. But uh, it was it was tough. People don't realize it. I mean, we were over there at 11 or 12 o'clock at night. But, you know, if, you, if you're over there at 11 or 12 o'clock at night and your cornerback still run a five-flat 40, uh, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how many X's and how many O's you put on that board, it's still usually not going to balance up. But uh, – it was some tough times, and uh, I credit Mac for you know keeping the uh, people off of us and give us a chance to to uh, you know build the program the way it should be built. And uh, that's one thing that uh, Mac can be proud of, and University of North Carolina can be proud of because we had a, you know we had, even as bad as we were as a football program when we first started, we still had tremendous academics. We still had. Uh, uh, great, great campus, uh, a beautiful town in Chapel Hill. So, you know, we had the things there that we needed to recruit. Uh, what we would had to do was take the time to get the players there. And I think 
I think Mac did a good job. I think all of our assistant coaches did a good job of uh, continuing to recruit and staying positive, and eventually we got that thing turned. Coach, let me ask you a, a two-part question that is that the two parts are similar to one another. Was there a game or a moment or a stretch of games that you started to see things getting better, that you realized that, hey, you know, the, the corner is starting to get turned? And then in relation to that, was there a class or a couple of players who you thought were really the, the key cornerstones of getting the talent level closer to what you guys felt like you needed to be successful? Well, you know, I'm not smart enough to remember all that you just asked me. You know that, don't you? Uh, you didn't no, know there was going to be a test. <laughs> we, You know, we did a good job, I think, of uh, getting where we were, in my opinion, dominating the state and recruiting. And that's where we basically recruited was from the North Carolina area and then uh, – a couple of our coaches, uh, Coach Brewster being one of them, uh, recruited up north some. So by bringing an influx of some of those kids, along with the kids in North Carolina, where the University of North Carolina truly meant something to them as far as the name recognition and, and the colors, uh, you know, we, we stayed the course, and those players believed in what we were trying to do. And <coughs> excuse me, and eventually we got that thing turned, but uh, – you know, I, I don't. Uh, I think the big. If I had to pick out one game, uh, you know, everybody talks about the victory that turned it around, but I think it was the tie that turned us around. That was against Georgia Tech, who finished the country number one in the country, and uh, we tied them early in the season for, and should have beat them because we were down on the goal line at the end of the game, but it didn't work out. But I think that proved to us that uh, we were where we needed to be, and we had the players we needed to have to give us give ourselves a chance to be successful. You mentioned all the recruiting that you and the rest of the coaching staff had to do to get Carolina to that point where the Tar Heels were so successful. Who is the all-time champion best recruiting meal that you ever had fixed for you when you were sitting there in somebody's home and you thought, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm going to get this kid, but I'm coming back here to eat? I would probably say Jeff Saturday because his mama, oh. when I went down there, of course, I made her proud of me eating because I could, you know, I could clean out a plate. <laughs> But she had uh, blueberry pie, strawberry pie, cherry pie. She had about five different pies. And I took me uh, a couple to go plates. But uh, I think I made her feel so good about her cooking that there was, there was no way that Jeff Saturday was going to go anywhere but Chapel Hill. <laughs> you locked it up right there on the dessert tray. That's what made it happen. <laughs> Coach, I, I'm interested in your thoughts are you prideful? Does it make you excited when you look at Carolina football now and there's so many guys, there's Rick Steinbacher and there's Dwight Hollier and there's Clint Gwaltney and, and guys who were player Kevin Donnelly involved at Carolina, guys that you knew as players that are now back and, and are helping make Carolina football what it is now? Well, guys, I think that was one of the great things about the type of football player we had at Carolina. They were academically sound. Uh, socially, they were going to represent the university in a great way, and uh, obviously they were good football players. But uh, when you talk about uh, Rick Steinbacher, uh, Dwight Hoyer, people like that, and, uh, you know, I, I hate to mention names because if I mention a couple, I'll leave somebody out, and I'll, I'll get a call right after this call to let me know that. But, uh, you know, just to uh, see the success of those guys, and I knew they were going to be successful. I knew they loved Carolina. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, Mac did a great job of uh, keeping those guys around uh, because there, there's no 
there's no two people or three people, Clint, Dwight, and uh, Rick, that love Carolina any more than they do. And uh, they can sell Carolina better than anybody because they can tell the recruits what it was like when they got there as compared to what they're getting getting into now. Because I've, you know, I haven't been back over in a long, long time, but uh, I know the facilities, the dressing rooms, the uh, campus, uh, obviously Chapel Hill itself. Uh, of course, uh, Mac. Uh, if Mac gets a, a parents and prospect in a room, uh, they're going to have to tell him why they don't want to come because he's going to tell them exactly why they ought to be there. Coach Corey Holiday just walked in and wants to have a word with both you and Jones, and he has a very stern look on his face. Hey, uh, Corey, Corey, if it hadn't been for me, Corey would have never graduated from college. <laughs> why is that? Oh, because I, 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 I'm tell you this about Corey. He'll, he'll be able to. He is the only recruit that we've ever had that actually, when he got to campus, he started taking notes on everything that we said, everything we did, uh, what was good, what was bad. I've never seen anybody take a, a notebook home with, with it full of notes on why you either should come to a university or shouldn't come to a university. So when Corey decided to come, uh, we knew we had something good to sell. <laughs> Um, Coach, you mentioned putting the X's and O's up on the board with the uh, the corners who were running a 5-0. When it got to be in that 95, 96, 97 range and you had a little different X's and O's to put up on the board, uh, what did that feel like and how did that change the way you were able to coordinate that defense? Well, there's no doubt. Uh, Robert Williams, Gray Bly, Omar Brown, Ron B- people like that, I mean, we could just about draw any defense up on that board and know that we could cover those four wideouts man-to-man and that they weren't going to get loose and that we had a chance to be successful. I, that, that was the most confident I've ever felt about calling a ball game because I knew how good our secondary was and I knew that they could play man-to-man coverage. So, you know, you couldn't get us in a busted coverage because if you say, I've got that guy and you've got that guy, cover him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's what those guys did. I mean, they were great cover guys. And I, the, I think one of the things that uh, I knew we were pretty good back there was when we played Florida State. We played man covers the entire ball game, and their receivers had a awful time of getting off of our guys. And very, very frustrated. And that was when they had some really, really good wide receivers. So I knew at that time we had a chance to be pretty good because of those uh, defensive backs. And I tell you another good story. I went and watched. Uh, Robert Williams and Dre Bly's intramural basketball team, and I have never seen as quick guys on a basketball court as they were uh, playing against each other. And they probably were very quiet the entire time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just about as quiet now, uh, then, as they are now, and that's not very quiet. <laughs> did, uh, did, did Greg, offensive coordinator Greg Davis or any of the Tar Heel offensive players ever get mad at you on the practice field during that time and say, hey, we we got to be able to do something successfully at some point against your guys. Well, no. I mean, uh, Greg Davis had offensive staff for a great, great offensive staff. I, I think Greg Davis is one of the best offensive minds that I've ever been around. He was a true team guy. Uh, we worked extremely well together. And, uh, you know, we always, uh, always got together. Of course, Mac was in there as well uh, to make sure that we gave – that we were able to show the other – the offense and also able to show the defense what the other team was doing so that they could have best on best and, and be able to do what the other team was doing at the same time. Coach, did you ever think that the phrase 
Coach Dre Bly would be uttered at, at the college level. What do you think about seeing him now on the Tar Heel staff? Well, there's no question that Dre's uh, smart enough and uh, enthusiastic enough, as you're well aware of. I haven't seen him actually coach on the field, but I can imagine what he's like and uh, very positive. Uh, and I'm sure he doesn't. He's got those defense backs believing they can't get beat. And, uh, you know, it'd be hard to have Dre Bly coming home as a defensive back and not decide you want to be playing for him. So, uh, you know, when I think of Dre Bly, I think of. Uh, he obviously he's a great guy with great emotion, great enthusiasm, great excitement, and I'm sure y'all had met his mom, uh, but she was just like him. And or let me rephrase that, he was just like her. Uh, you know, I never did understand how he was able to play baseball, at Carolina, because I couldn't figure out how he could sit still long enough to uh, for batting practice and uh, infield practice. There's been a couple times he's had me believing that I could cover somebody, and then I have to explain to him, you don't understand, you're working with a little less material than what you're accustomed to. You're quite literally working with a 4.8, 5-plus <laughs> 40. I, I'd love to hit that 5.040. That well, sounded like flying to me. After he got through talking to you, he'd make you think you could run a 4.5, whether you could or not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the thing about Dre, when he played, uh, of course, he, he was coached by the best I think man coverage guy in America in Ron Case. But, uh, you know, Dre was the kind that once he got his technique down and, and learned what to do and how to do it, you know, he would bait, he would bait a wide, wide receivers a defensive back. Now, he'd make them think they were open. He'd make the quarterback think they were open. And then that's why he had 11 interceptions one year. And he had great hands on top of that. Now, he he was a guy. Difference in him and Robert Williams, Robert Williams led the nation in pass breakups Dre by the nation in pass interceptions because one could catch real well and one could not catch real well. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever coached another defensive back who had that ability to bait an offense into thinking someone is open and then making up that ground? Now, though, he, he and Robert Williams, without doubt, I mean, they were – when you had those two guys covering the other team's best wide receivers, you knew that you could – still do what you want to do with the front seven or eight. And that was one reason we were able to bring quite a bit of pressure because we had so much confidence in them. And we were not going to give that quarterback time much time to throw the football. Coach, in 1997, Tar Heels have a very successful year, uh, win the regular season finale, and then Coach Brown leaves for Texas. That was, relatively speaking, with, with not as much internet, there was a lot of upheaval going on right then. What do you remember about that time period for, for Carolina football? Well, it, it was obviously uh, there were some people upset, uh, but Mac had done what he needed to do at Carolina as far as he had built the facilities the way they should be built. He had the uh, the the new the dressing room now that was being built as he left. Uh, you know, it was I'm sure there were some people upset about him leaving. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, when you're 11 and one, there's not much more you can do. And uh, you know, getting beat by Florida State, obviously everybody got beat by Florida State back in those days. But uh, you know, I, I think uh, obviously if Mac didn't love Chapel Hill, if he didn't love North Carolina, he wouldn't be back there right now. Coach, I still have that that vivid picture in my mind of you being carried off the field in the Gator Bowl uh, after that season was complete. What was that? 
moment? What was that game like for you as you took over in the interim role for that game and, of course, eventually became the full-time coach? But what was that moment in game like for you? Well, the first thing, you know, Mac let all of the coaches that went to Texas stay back, Greg Davis included, uh, to help us have a chance to win that bowl game. And obviously that was about as uh, – most most dominating performances I've ever seen. I mean, offensively, defensively, and special teams, we did everything we could do as a football team, and that was reason scores as it was. But, uh, you know, there's no doubt that we had a great team. Uh, obviously, you know, if we played Florida State, maybe I shouldn't say this now, but I will. Uh, if we played Florida State ten, ten times, in my opinion, we'd beat them over five times. That that Gator Bowl victory was about the most dominant I've ever seen in college football of two teams supposedly on the same level, where it quickly right. becomes apparent that one of them is not at all on the other one's level. <laughs> well, we, you know, like I say, we uh, we blocked a punt, we uh, faked a punt, and got a first down, we intercepted balls, we uh, uh, Chris Kelly had a tremendous game, as I remember. Uh, it, it was just a tremendously dominating performance in, in every way that you could dominate. And, uh, you know, it was a thrill to me. Because, of course, in my opinion, you know, all I did was uh, continue to do what Mac had got got that football team to that point. The The current players at the time were very vocal about being in your corner as far as being the next head coach of the Tar Heels. What did that mean to you? Well, I, not even being the head coach, it meant a great deal to me that uh, that many guys went over. And I didn't know they, I didn't put them up to it. I didn't know they were going to do it. But I found out later there were about seven or eight of uh, Greg Ellis, uh, people like that, uh, just great people that went over and basically told Dickie Bedour that I, I should be the head coach. And uh, soon after that, I was named the head coach. Coach, what was that transition like? That that was not going to be easy for anyone who followed Mac Brown and, and what he had been able to do. And what was that transition like for you? What were some of the challenges that you faced uh, in those uh, couple of seasons that you were the head coach? Well, I, you know, obviously it was a pretty good situation because I'd already been there about 10 years. And uh, so I knew where, who was what. Uh, I knew who to go to. I knew who to see. I knew, knew what players. Uh, that we're going to move into starting roles. And, you know, we lost a lot of seniors after that uh, Gator Bowl, but, uh, you know, we had a lot coming back. And uh, then that one year we had, good gracious, we had a, just a boatload of injuries that uh, kept us from doing what we needed to do. And I, I thought we was getting the program turned back a little bit. But, uh, you know, they had to make decisions. That's, 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 it is what it is. I mean, that's, uh, if you don't win enough ball games, you're not going to be around very long. What were some of the best perks of being the head football coach at North Carolina that people like us who haven't been the head football coach at North Carolina wouldn't realize that maybe maybe you didn't realize until you were sitting in that chair well like I say the the, the facilities were just being renovated and rebuilt and Mac was responsible for that there's no question about that so I I walked into a pretty good situation as far as having a brand new Fine office and uh, dressing room was great. The, uh, the, the, you know, we were down at the other end. I don't even know what's down there anymore. I don't. They may have. That was where the dressing room and stuff used to be. The, the other end where, gosh, I don't even know what that's. That was back then. That was the new end. I don't know what it's called now. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the Keenan but, Football uh, Center side now. Yeah, correct. And then the the old where the old Alamo used to be now is closed in as well with what they call the Blue Zone. So it's fully closed in. Okay, now. that's 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 so. Like I say, I walked in a pretty good situation, and and obviously with the season like we had, so uh, you know, it wasn't like I had to rebuild. Mac Brown had to rebuild the program, uh, and you know, we got to give our assistant coaches a lot of credit for staying the course and, and recruiting and recruiting and recruiting and uh, obviously we got to, got it where it needs to be but you got to realize now Carolina's got a lot to say on the academics the campus uh, the people uh, you know there's just a lot of things that uh, if you do what you're supposed to do you already have a chance to be successful you mentioned recruiting one of your quarterbacks during that time was Ronald Curry we had Ronald on uh, not too many weeks ago and he was talking some about his recruitment. What do you remember about uh, his his college choice process and all the ups and downs that that involved? Well, I wish I could say it was all Carl Torbush, <laughs> but in my opinion, it was Dean Smith and Bill Guthridge because I think that was, in my opinion, the true reason that we got him uh, to Carolina was because of Carolina basketball and the opportunity to play both sports and you know, I was the kind of guy that if you were good enough to do both and you stayed on your academics and did what you were supposed to do socially, that I'd give you the opportunity to do that. And uh, so, you know, that I think that intrigued Ronald. And like I say, the we were just the beneficiary of what, in my opinion, Carolina basketball gave Ronald Curry. But, uh, you know, it was a sad thing for Ronald because he tore that Achilles, and uh, I'm not sure that he ever got 100% from that, but... There was no finer. He could have been, in my opinion, uh, he was a great quarterback, but he could have been one of the best safeties in ACC history if we'd put him over there. But uh, what a great young man, good student, had a great, great family, and just a just a just a good representative of the University of North Carolina. Coach, did you? What kind of relationship did you have with Coach Smith and Coach? Coach Guthridge, of course, there was the transition there as well in basketball at about the same time period that we're talking about. What what kind of relationship did you have with them? Did did you ever talk with them about running a program or coaching a team? Uh, every time I could get over there, they were uh, great. Uh, obviously, Carolina's basketball has been the top, if you know, one of the top, if not the top, in the country, and has been for a number of years. Of course, you had Roy Williams. He was an assistant at that time. Bill Guthridge and, and uh, Coach Smith. And, and the great thing about them, if we if we had a kid that we were recruiting, and we felt like that he wanted to meet Coach Smith, we could take them over there. I don't care what Coach Smith was doing or Coach Guthridge. Uh, if we knocked on that door, they'd open that door, let them come in, close the doors, spend time with them. So. Uh, it was really, really a great situation. And that's one thing. There's very few schools in the country that can be uh, good in both football and basketball. And obviously, obviously, uh, we were. And, you know, think about Carolina. They, they're good in everything. I don't care. Field hockey, lacrosse, soccer. Podcasts. Uh, baseball. <laughs> there you go. Could- hey, no, nobody ever heard that word when I was, when I was over there. <laughs> Coach, you have had some health challenges uh, in recent years. How is your health, and what was that experience like for you? Well, I mean, obviously I've always kept myself in good shape and jogged. And Of course, I, one thing I, that I didn't like about Chapel Hill was all those hills to jog up. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I 
basically had a physical every year and uh, I got got a physical in Kansas and uh, had a uh, mild form of prostate cancer and got that taken care of and pretty quick and have been in good health since then but uh, you know that that'll make you think about what you what you want to do with the rest of your life. Coach you've coached a, a whole bunch of football games in your life have you ever coached one in windier conditions than that Las Vegas Bowl? Oh no no not not when they knock the uh, scoreboard down uh, the wind knocks the scoreboard down that's, <laughs> that's and the great the amazing thing about that is Brian Smith's averaged I think about 45 yards a punt and I don't care if he was punting with the wind or against the wind it was uh it was amazing to see him do that I, the, I think him and Ronald Curry uh won that ball game for us without a doubt coach you talking about Curry I think I have this right. Your first game, as not the bowl game, but the first game the next season, is when Oscar Davenport was your starter but got hurt very early in that game, and you had to bring Ronald in, I'm assuming, and even Ronald told us this earlier than he was expecting to go in or that you guys were probably expecting him to go in. When you're on the sideline and it's game one of your tenure out of place and your veteran starting quarterback goes down, What's going through your mind at that point? Well, first of all, you know, you know, I hope you realize how good Oscar Davenport was because he had, uh, she was a great, great looking athlete. You know, had good height. He had uh, length. He could throw the ball. He could run the ball. Uh, when he got hurt, and then uh, obviously uh, we put Ronald in there, and not too many games after it, I think that was that was the year that uh, Ronald tore his Achilles up. No, I'm wrong on that. He played. Because Ronald played in the uh, Las Vegas Bowl and he tore it up the next year. Yeah, second year. Uh, and yes. that that second year was what I wanted to ask you about because you had some incredibly unfortunate run of injuries oh, at the quarterback position that year. What do you remember about the last few weeks of that season as you're trying to figure out who can actually throw the ball down the field in major college football? <laughs> well, we were on our fifth quarterback, Antoine Black, who was a safety force and a really good safety he was a high school quarterback he ended up uh being a quarterback and then we had dominique williams who was a running back so i mean it was uh and Luke, it, it was awful i mean it uh we were just we were on threads as far as getting through a ball game we had to you know we had to play pretty perfect to have a chance to win because of so many but we never used that as an excuse that's just part of football and uh you know if you recruit well enough you ought to have enough depth to overcome any injuries you have but, but uh there's no doubt. Looking back, uh, man, we had we had a bunch of as most by far the most injuries I've ever seen in one football season. Coach Adam and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago that we have very specific places in the state of North Carolina that makes us think about individuals. And for me, if I'm ever traveling on 40 West and I see the East Spencer sign up there on the highway. <laughs> I immediately think of Carl Torber. So I just want you to know that you're in my mind every time I'm driving 40 west there in the western part of the state. Well, two things. You better not blink or you'll miss East Spencer. <laughs> and number two, you, be you better not run out of gas. <laughs> I'll just say I know you. If I run out of gas, I'll say I need some – don't worry, don't bother me. I know Coach Torbush, and I'll get a free pass. Well, hey, 20 years ago, that might have got you out of there. I'm not sure it'd do that anymore. <laughs> Coach, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you being with us. So glad to talk with you and, and hope things are going really well for you. It, it is. Y'all do a great, great job. And if you ever need me again, feel free to call. But uh, like I say, Mac has done a phenomenal job. And obviously, he's he's going to 
they're going to have a hard time beating him in North Carolina recruiting, I can tell you that. Adam, pod 300. It seems like 200 just happened. You're, you're certain you counted these accurately. No, but I think we're pretty close. <laughs> I, think, I think we're relatively close. Can I? Can we tell one funny story from the funny story from the road, Adam? Yes, I was hoping we would. So, be, due to the COVID restrictions, the team plane is much lighter than normal, and by that I mean fewer people are on it outside of coaches, players, and some immediate staff members. So. We are some of the few that would normally be on the team plane, but are not at the moment. So we went separately. So after the game, we had a rental, a rental car, and we were taking the rental car back to go to the airport to get on home. And Ben Alexander, our chief network engineer. You know him from his Smith Center Tunnel exploits. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Ben was who I was in the car with when High on You came on repeatedly. So when Ben's around, something's going to happen. Yeah, Some, something wacky will happen. So we get about one minute down the road, and we get the tire pressure gauge on. And I saw it. Nobody else saw it. I mean, we all saw the, the tire pressure gauge, but I, you know how they'll show you the little diagram of the car and show you what the pressure is on all the tires? Right. Well, three of them were like 33 or 34, and one of them was 26. Mm. So definitely lower than the others. And I said, well, once we get off this one road, the next road is going to have some gas stations on it. We can pull it. And and Ben was was like, we don't need to do that. It's going to heat up while we're driving. It'll it'll just fill up. I think he said by driving fast, he was going to transfer some heat to the tire which would cause it to inflate. And we we had about a, a solid half-hour drive. Yeah, good 20 to 25-minute drive, including some interstate driving. So I was like, well, why don't we just at least try, let's just try this gas station, and they'll have some air, and we can put some air in this tire if we feel like we need to. Because, Adam, I knew... Harkening back to an early pod conversation, that most gas stations now have the automatic air thing where you just plug in your number and then you put it on the tire and it inflates it to the number. Well, you talked about it on the pod when that invention was in yeah. its infancy. Yeah. And because you talked about it on the pod, it's widespread. It, it went worldwide. Yeah. And everyone suddenly realized this was the best way to spread air around the land. It really is the best way. Yeah. How did we do it before with the little dumb things where you had to check it yourself and it would like shoot out the little thing? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, I I went to show our youngest daughter how to put air in her tires because she's at that age where she hasn't really done it before and now it's time to learn. Just one of those things I do as a dad, (laughs) as a pappy. And I said, well, we're going to have to find a place that has the really cool air. And she acted like she didn't know what I was talking about. Because to her, all air is the cool air. That's the generation of which she belongs. Yeah. You kids, you don't know how good you have it today. I didn't used to just be able to punch in a number. I'm just going to type in my 
34 pressure, and that's what I want in all my tires. Next thing you're going to tell me is you don't have a tire gauge in your glove compartment. Where were we? Oh, yeah. So we pulled into the gas station up to the air thing. And so Ben and I, who are sitting in the front seat, each get out, to which I tell Adam that mom and dad are going to take care of this because Adam was in the back seat. I asked him to get me a slushie, and they didn't. I said, keep your mouth shut. You and your sister will be lucky to get anything back there. The way you've been treating each other. So we get out, and I'm walking around to the front left tire, which is the problem. But Ben's already got it handled, Adam, because he's just kicking it. <laughs> he's, he both kicks the tire and then kind of puts the bottom of his foot on the tire and tries to, you know, kind of depress it in, you know, just to, uh, and he's like, ah, this is fine. <laughs> and he went and looked at all the others. He said, yeah, it's just like the others. It's fine. I think he kicked a couple of the others. Yeah, too. oh, he did. Like just he to make sure that they all reacted the same way as the one that was allegedly low. To his scientific kick right. that applied the exact same pressure on each one. Right. Yeah. When you hear Jones say he was just kicking it, he wasn't just kicking it like Jodeci circa late 90s. He was literally kicking the tires. And as I told them, uh, Ma and Pa, when they got back in the car, I said, I, to this point, I always thought kicking the tires was an expression. And what Ben taught me on the day of the Boston College game, which I will never forget, much like Larry Gallo in the gas tank, yeah. is that you actually can kick the tires, and that is a scientific answer to are you having tire trouble, and the answer was no. No. And we safely made our way to the airport and caught our flight home. Now, the light didn't realize nah. that Ben had kicked nah. the tire because it stayed on. That light, I question it. Clearly, it didn't know... The, the tire, there should have been a button. Like, guys, we've kicked the tire. We're pushing this button. Everything's good. Yeah. I would like to negate your low right. pressure reading. I decline this light. Oh, let's talk. What? So we've been trying to, we had our nose deep in the rule book here for a while. We even texted some people. Yeah. So there was the odd call in this game where Michael Carter, back to receive the kickoff, Apparently called for a fair catch, but the ball bounced on the ground before he caught it. And then the play was ruled dead, and Carolina had to have the ball at the four-yard line. So you can call for a fair catch on a kickoff. That was a new rule a couple of seasons ago. But you're supposed to, if you, if you make a fair catch outside of the 25-yard line, so like on a pooch kick, then you just get the ball where you catch it after the fair catch. If you make the fair catch inside the 25-yard line, so between the 25 and the goal line, and you make the fair catch, then you get the ball at the 25. But Carolina got the ball at like the four, and the ruling that we were told was that since the ball hit the ground – that it was then dead when Michael Carter caught it, even though it was a fair catch and he should have been at the 25, but it hitting the ground negated that. But since he called for the fair catch, it was dead once he caught it after it hit the ground. I know that wasn't really clear. And honestly, we, we looked hard in the rule book and couldn't 
find the a real clear definition or a real clear ruling or a lot of times they'll they'll give you potential scenarios like this and tell you what the ruling is and we didn't see anything like that but I think that is what they called is that since the ball hit the ground first there the reward if you will of getting the ball at the 25 was no longer active and it was a live ball but since Michael Carter had called fair catch and then fielded it after it hit the ground, it was dead where he fielded it. So I had never seen that before, and it was a confusing call, and it turned out to be a big play because that's when Sam Howe got hit two plays after that, throwing the ball from the back, or he got hit from the back as he was throwing the ball, ended up being picked off, and BC scored a touchdown a couple plays later, which really made the game close, and it was close from that point forward. After Carolina had led by... 11 BC had just made a field goal to make it 14 to 6 and then that play happened I think one of your questions is why did Michael Carter call for a fair catch on that type of kick and then he did it again which we have not seen Carolina do that very often him call for a fair catch on kickoffs but he did it again later in the game and he called it cleanly and it certainly I mean the strategy isn't bad the 25 yard line is I mean that's why they did it's, it's like an okay place to start. That That's why they make it that way for the fair catch and for a touchback is that both teams are okay probably with the 25. But, I, yeah, I'm not sure why he called for a fair catch on that particular play unless they have told him, hey, it, it call, call for fair catches in this game because we just want to get our offense on the field at the 25. And it seemed like – I didn't see him call for a fair catch, but he seemed to agree that he had. Right. Because when the play was whistled dead, he immediately dropped the ball. He didn't turn around and go palms up on the official. Never, so never do that. Yeah. He seemed like he agreed that he had done it. It was just that he didn't realize that the penalty was going to be and not. It wasn't even a real penalty. They didn't throw a flag. the The outcome was going to be so severe. It was just one of those weird plays that you'll see in that one football game and probably never again. You'll certainly never see it when the Tar Heels are kicking because Jonathan Kim's going to kick that ball through the end zone. He does it every time. And it it's so interesting to me because it hits – it's almost the exact same kick every time. Like, it hits about seven to eight yards in the end zone and then just goes right through the back of the end zone. Almost every time. But that's great. He's like a relief pitcher who's got only a fastball. But that's all he needs. He's going to throw the fastball. If you can hit it, congrats. Yeah. But he's you're getting the fastball. Yeah. Okay, before we wrap things up. A reminder that there's more to the Pinehurst Resort than Donald Ross's masterpiece, Pinehurst number. Duh. There's, <laughs> there's Gilhans' stunning redesign of number four. There is the Cradle, which is the fun short course. You can unwind at the stylish North and South Bar. And there's the Piners Brewing Company, too. Craft beers and classic barbecue. This is probably going to be the one they want to cut and send to Pinehurst and tell them what a good job we're doing on their readers. There's never been more to discover at the Cradle of American Golf. Go to Pinehurst.com right now. Okay, Adam, anything else before we pod 300 our way out of here? No. Okay. So we thought about it. We thought about it. <laughs> Pod 100 
we had Rebecca Black in Big Grits. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. I'm Rebecca Black, and I am wishing you the best weekend you've ever had in your life. See you later, Big Grits. This is Big Grits to all you other grits saying, see you later, Big Grits. We set the bar high from the very beginning. Yeah. When we have Rebecca Black and Big Grits on Pod 100, you're, there's it's like Sam Howe in his freshman year. You have to consistently hit excellence when you do that. Every other person is going to be compared to Rebecca Black. Sorry, you just came up short. Pod 200. We had the pod made it to 200 songs. Roadhouse challenge, foot loose, Mr. Honkers, he's a goose. Robin's racing, Spotterville's amazing. Shorter open time is gone, we even had Ed Coda on. Lifetime, pantsless crime, how can you justify? That really was good. Anytime Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire comes on, my kids are like, it's the pod 200 song. Yeah, yeah that's right, it is, guys. <laughs> this Billy Joel character. Looks like he's been stealing my material. Uh, Mr. Joel, sir, I'm going to need some rights fees for your usage of that song. So we thought, how can we, how can we do something special for pod 300? 300 pods, Adam. <laughs> so we thought, who is the classiest man that we know? That can help us with pod 300. Well, there's only one answer to that, Adam. There's only one. So our friend, Bill Leslie, and the movie 300, which I have seen, but it's been a long time. Adam's never seen it. Big dramatic film. Big dramatic man and Bill Leslie. Put those things together, Adam. And you have Pod 300. I suggest you watch the 300 movie trailer to prepare for this. And that'll really get you in the right frame of mind. Like, wash all the color out of your mind. Only shades of gray and dark colors in this pod because we're so grimy. We're just fighting for Pod. Bill Leslie is fighting for Pod. So for that, we're going to have Pod 300. Then we're going to let Carl Torbush and the RZA. And in all seriousness, thanks for being with us for 300 pods. It's hard to believe that we got to 300. Who knows when it'll stop, Adam? What are you going to do for Pod 500? It's probably closer to stopping after this one than it has been many other times. I... In all seriousness, I have actually thought about 500 and I'm worried about it. Yeah, I don't know what to do. It's going to be a biggie. But for now, we're going to pop 300 and then we're going to let Carl Torbush and the RZA get us out of here on the latest edition of the Carolina. This pod has descended from Pod World Headquarters itself. We are taught that Brianna is an idiot. You're such an idiot, Brianna. <laughs> El Paso really rocks. Yes, El Paso really, really rocks. And that Big Grits is the greatest order 
that can be placed. See you later, Big Grit. The pod, the finest bonanza the world has ever known. Wow, bro. That's crazy. An iguanacoma. Yeah. Iguoma. Watch your head, Jack! Show me that smile again. Show me that smile. This is madness. Which member of your family was Buttman? This is Pog. JC Penny is coming here because of me. From Learfield, I'm G College. Apples and grape nuts. A what up goes to Tar Heel Bird, Adam. <laughs> North Carolina Nation everywhere throughout the universe. This is Bill Walton. We didn't have tornadoes here until we started putting into traffic circles. Dr. Pepper. Here in Cary Oasis' backyard, we have signed the Magna Carta and changed the course of human history. I like it, Coda Coda. <laughs> I like it, Coda Coda. Tonight, we die at the Blue Plate can you possibly justify that? I don't like it when people are given web addresses and they have to say forward slash. I go backwards on my posterior on the escalator. Welcome to the Potty Awards. The Aristocrat of Tenderness. Army Navy is a game I want to go to. Discover, plan, or book your vacation to Zion National Park. Followers like Adam with his TSA pre-check status. Pre-check! That doesn't mean Red Panda is any less of an elite performer. I would be lying to you, Adam, if I said I haven't at least thought in my lifetime of purchasing a seersucker suit. I didn't realize there was a baby. I just thought there was Dub Baby and Lil Baby. We're in for one wild pod. Naked Florida man revealed on video, sneaking into restaurant, munching on Raymond, Ramen. 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 Sorry. Sorry. Even I got, <laughs> even I got that one. <laughs> I was thinking about something else. Do you think, Adam, <laughs> that Malik Monk <laughs> eats Raymond noodles? It is our maiden voyage on the Carolina Insider. I'm Jones Angel across the desk here in the Chapel Hill Carolina Insider World Headquarters is Adam Lucas. So this this going to be fun, right? I don't we don't really know what we're doing. You told me it was. Yeah. I'm Carl Torbush. Would like to say a special shout out to Big Grits. When I was small, we had nothing at all. We used to eat grits box of sugar and a stick of margin a hot pot of grits kept my family from starving steamy hot meal served less than five minutes big silver pot boiling water salt in it house full of brothers and sisters the pot's missing pilgrim on a box on the stove in the kitchen when i was small we had nothing at all we used to eat Be 
See you later, Big Green. The preceding has been a Learfield IMG College presentation of the Tar Heel Sports Network. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.